I used to teach the problems of philosophy by Bertrand Russell when I would uh, teach intro classes of some kind, or I taught it a few times, right? And that 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 is like a really hard book to teach undergrads, even though tons of like philosophers tell you that's a great way to introduce people to analytic philosophy. Yeah. And what I found that what I did was actually I had to reverse something where I made them read the final chapter first, mm. which is where Russell talks about the value of philosophy and it's about how like we're going to discover that the world is an interesting and diverse and strange place in a way that we never would have imagined had we not asked these questions to begin with and i'm like now with that in mind we're going to talk about desdemona loves cassio <laughs> like yeah. like like <laughs> yeah. over and over right now with that in mind we're going to talk about um knowledge by acquaintance um you know the, the like these sorts of concepts and that seemed to help them a little a, a little bit right Hey, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. I'm your host, Parker Setacase, and this is a podcast where we explore all the deepest ideas in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. This episode's a very, very special one. I have with me Dr. Jared Henderson, and we're going to be talking about public philosophy. Mm, what is that? What is philosophy in general? Analytic philosophy versus public philosophy. It's going to be awesome. I'm really excited about it. I can't, can barely hold myself in. Before we jump in, I want to thank everyone who's making this podcast happen over on Patreon and YouTube members. If you guys like this show, help me keep the lights on, help me you know, feed my dogs and uh, justify this to my friends and family. That would be huge. Uh, if you guys want to see me around, please become a Patreon patron or a YouTube member. You can get different perks at different levels. You can find the links uh, in the description wherever you're getting this podcast at. Not too much commodification of myself today. You can find us in Facebook, uh, in the Facebook group, Parker's Pensies Ponciers. A lot of my guests are there, and we have amazing conversations, a lot on the philosophy of AI right now, so that's pretty cool. Uh, and there's a lot of other ways to find me, all the socials. I'm all over the place. Still trying to figure out how to respond back to you folks. So if you don't get a message right back, uh, eventually, in the next couple months, but hopefully sooner. All right, let's stop doing that, and let's get in with Dr. Jared Henderson and talk about philosophy jared well, thanks so much thanks so much for coming to the podcast man this is awesome absolutely i'm looking forward to it yeah um dude i don't even know where to start so you you have a phd in philosophy and it's it's an emphasis in analytic the, uh, philosophy and it's mm -hmm. like the analytic of analytic philosophy because it's on theories of truth and logic and like even the analytic philosophers is like mm, i don't know that's pretty analytic man yeah, yeah. So my, my dissertation was on theories of truth, um, and particularly a kind of like language first approach to doing theories of truth. Yeah. And in particular, a kind of like formal linguistic approach to doing <laughs> a language first approach to theories of truth. Yeah. Um, the, the, the paper that I consider to be sort of the core of my dissertation was this was this chapter called truth and great ability, where I defend like a degree theoretic um, theory of truth. So truth there are then some things that are less true than others, but aren't totally false, these sorts of things. And I base the whole thing out of linguistic evidence, right? And then try to give a formal semantic theory that's consistent with other theories of gradable adjectives. And then say, if the way that we talk about truth is reflective of what truth is, here is what the metaphysics would look like. Um, it's not surprising that that kind of paper got published eventually in the journal of philosophical logic. Yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, um, and so, yeah, my, I guess you could say that I tried to just go for the most analytic type of analytic philosophy that yeah. you could do uh, in, in, a, in a PhD. Yeah. So so um, I've, I've done several episodes on uh, metaphysics of truth, some like epistemology type stuff of truth. So a lot of my audience is going to be like, well, course, correspondence theory. And I thought we could just touch mm -hmm. on that real quick before we move on. How, how would like a deflationary account, mm, maybe you wouldn't characterize yours as a deflationary account, but a language first account make sense or, or compare with like a, a just facts account of correspondence maybe yeah. another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check planning for what's next and how to save for it that's where bank of america can help for your financial to-dos bank of america has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals get started at one of our local financial centers or 24 7 in our mobile banking app Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. 
Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So, so my my theory actually, I I eventually kind of the follow up chapter of that dissertation, I give like a metaphysical theory of truth that's consistent with sort of my linguistic theory, and actually I call it a version of the correspondence theory. Nice. Uh, it's a so I do think that fundamentally what truth is is reflecting the way that the world is or corresponding. I don't, however, say that truth is correspondence to the facts because I don't have facts in my ontology. I have objects in my ontology. I have objects with properties in my ontology. And then I have propositions which represent things in particular ways. There's actually um, a really good book uh, by uh, by Kuna um, called, I believe, Conceptions of Truth. It's been a little while since I I read that book. And he gives, it's this classic sort of German style a uh, book that's like I will give you a theory of truth subtly while actually giving you a complete history of theories of truth at least in western philosophy awesome. and so this is yeah. where he's going to talk about Hegel he's going to talk about Aquinas he's going to talk about Frege Russell but yeah, he just goes through it all and it's really comprehensive and if you're interested in theories of truth it's one of those books that's probably not cited enough to be honest because mm-hmm. of how comprehensive it is uh and a point that he made that I really latched onto in my dissertation was that correspondence theories did not always posit facts as a separate thing in their ontology. So actually, when when Frege talks about correspondence, he yeah. uses this cathedral as an example. He actually talks about the proposition representing the thing, mm-hmm. like representing an object. So I call mine an object-based uh, correspondence theory or an objectual correspondence theory. And Frege called uh, those propositions thoughts, right? He did call those. Pre- yeah, that was so confusing for me at first. And then I figured out, I was like, OK, I, I think I like that. That's good. Yeah. So 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 my view, I didn't take a stand on the nature of propositions in, okay. in my dissertation. Yeah. In fact, I actually saw it as a kind of virtue of my theory that I didn't have to take a stand on what the primary truth bearers were, whether those yeah. are thoughts as in things in the head, propositions as in mind, independent representational entities or sentences. Uh, the important part was that whatever the primary truth bearer was, it was the sort of thing that could represent objects. Yeah. Um, and I sort of argue for neutrality on, uh, on that point, like that we should not take a stand on the primary truth bearers if we can avoid it. Um, certain theories kind of seem to require taking certain primary truth bearers uh, as primary and everything else is derivative. Yeah. So in a case of the, the case for this would be propositions are primary as mind independent representational entities. That's uh, that's sort of a standard view. Yeah. And then sentences represent things insofar as they express propositions. Totally. So yeah, yeah. It, I love it's it. derivative. It's derivative of propositions. I just said, I don't take stand on this at all. I wanted to remain neutral. Remaining neutral on big debates is is a virtue if you can if you can avoid it. So um, so I do hold to a correspondence theory of truth. I started graduate school actually as a fairly committed deflationist. Okay. I I was like a pretty hardcore deflationist. And then I had this kind of one-off conversation with someone who was on my dissertation committee, uh, Magdalena Kaufman, who's a semanticist. Hmm. Uh, she's in the linguistics department. The University of Connecticut was great for interdisciplinary work like this. We had yeah. a great logic group with mathematicians and uh, logicians and linguists. And she kind of mentioned, she's like, oh, yeah, you know, no one ever noticed in the literature that actually the truth predicate can take um modifiers that would suggest a degradable adjective hmm. and you know someone should someone should talk about that and she said that to me at like a conference we were holding at uconn near the end of the spring semester and that summer i just thought about it <laughs> a, a yeah. lot yeah and then i started kind of putting the idea forward i would tell it to there's this philosopher who was at U- uconn at the time he's still there but uh, he's close to retirement i believe um uh bill lichen william lichen yeah and, yeah I was talking to Bill Lichen at a a barbecue and I just, and he was like, well, you're just one of those deflations, right? Bill's version view is actually called, um, I believe meta maximum minimalism, which is that it's very, or 
maxi meta minimalism. It is very important that we don't take a stand on what truth is. Is what uh, his his uh, his view. He he just doesn't care actually about yeah. the nature of truth. Wow. But he kind of jokingly said, "You're one of those deflationists." And I said, "Well, Bill, I actually don't know if I'm a deflationist anymore because I've been thinking about this idea that truth is a thing that comes in degrees because it takes um, certain uh, modifiers as like the, the the predicate. So it just doesn't behave like the deflationists say that it behaves." And he looked at me and he's like, that's a good idea. Mm. <laughs> you know, and, yeah. and occasionally when someone tells you like, that's a good idea, you should, you should pursue it. And that's especially became... someone like that. Yeah. 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 Right. And, um, and Bill and I, and in fact, my first publication was defending deflationism against, uh, a, a paper, a very influential paper by Dorit Baron, Bill Lichen and their PhD student at the time, Claire Horisk. And I mm. had written a response paper to that. So they had thought I was just a hardcore deflationist still, but I kind of came around and um, I kind of joked that at UConn, like lots of people work on theories of truth. Um, Michael Lynch is there and that was when he was doing like his truth pluralism stuff. He was on my committee. We had Stuart Shapiro who had come in and had worked on, worked on some stuff on truth. He was on my committee. Keith Simmons, who was my dissertation advisor, had worked on truth. Wow. Um, we also had Lionel Shapiro, who had worked on deflationism, J.C. Beale, who had worked on deflationism, who I worked with pretty closely, just all of these people who had worked on truth. And I got to go into my dissertation uh, defense and say, I have a theory of truth. And one consequence of my theory is that every single one of you is wrong, uh, <laughs> and, and, and which made it just like for a really fun time. Now, did I convince any of them? Absolutely not. But but it was a lot of fun. And it, and it was really kind of transformative to go from being a deflationist about truth to uh, becoming a fairly robust correspondence theorist. Now I'm not yeah. a pluralist. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a monist about truth. Uh, you know, like okay, I, okay. I have this, and I'm like a. In a way, I say that I'm actually defending like the most traditional version of truth you could have, in the sense that it kind of makes sense of things that Aristotle and Aquinas would say, while also capturing a sort of natural language observation about how we use the the truth predicate. Oh yeah, yeah. That's a. I mean, that's an extra benefit. That's huge. Uh, Okay, some of the audience is lost. You guys, don't worry about it. We're going to get into public philosophy. I, I did this mostly to demonstrate that Jared is uh, an analytic of analytics. Even uh, there will be a rhetorical point there later. But uh, Jared, so just real quick, you said you said something about propositions. I can't remember the exact words, but they're like primary maybe. Um, do, you, do you take a stand on whether or not they're like structured? No, I, I have no version of, okay. of propositions uh, or like no, no view of propositions. I used to care. I, I had this one idea that deflationism and structuralist propositions were like these really natural pairings and that it was really easy to be a deflationist. Yeah. Um, actually, there's like a really good argument for deflationism if um, propositions aren't structured, which is that the, the proposition that P um, denotes a set of worlds and yeah. the proposition that P is true denotes the same set of worlds um, <laughs> or the proposition that the proposition that P is true denotes that same set of worlds. And so the truth predicate adds no content in, right, in, right. in, in that way. And so you get on a kind of almost quick version of, of an argument for deflationism. I don't know if anyone ever thought that was a good argument when I gave <laughs> it, um, but I kind of thought there was something there. It just was something I never pursued. Uh, I thought term. JC made an argument like that on the podcast. Um, I'll have to go back and listen, but uh, he, he was doing some fun stuff with the truth predicate. He he might have done that. I mean, he has this view that what truth is, logically speaking, is like the null operator. Yeah, yeah, right? that's it's, right. It's, it's, it's yeah. the operator that does nothing yeah. except except get you into a lot of logical trouble. <laughs> uh, um, and so I, it's kind of it's sort of simp like simpatico with what, what JC might say. Um, yeah. On, on those issues so i had so i had like for a little while a view of this i liked the structuralist view of propositions as well for a little while because it was basically the view of propositions that you find in semantics mm -hmm. and if you take this sort of semantic if you believe that semantics is a science and you believe that like philosophy should sort of make sense of our best um, scientific theories of various phenomena then it would seem like the best theory of propositions kind of follows that it's a um uh, structuralist propositions but that's contested enough in semantics as well that you'll find structured proposition theorists in there as well craig roberts mm -hmm. has uses Fergian senses and some of her theories that's my about, thing like, I, under discussions and stuff. i love that so, i love that yeah so, well i study philosophy yeah. of religion so i'm like anytime i can like put this in contact with the mind of god and and these are oh, you know, yeah, propositions yeah. or thoughts right and they're composed of concepts and those are Fergian mm -hmm. senses and now we got an argument here maybe but yeah that's that's um 
that's for another time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, so Jared, all this, man, we just like blew up the, the audience's mind and probably ruined the, the uh, YouTube analytics here. But uh, you, you went from that and now you, you left the academy. You're doing work in uh, the digital world, I think, and uh, mm-hmm. or in the tech, tech space. And you're like this public philosopher uh, phenom on YouTube. How the heck? Like what happened? Well, I left uh, academia because of the job market. I never went on the academic job market. Um, I had a job lined up a year before I had my dissertation and I decided to pursue it. Um, It paid well and it didn't seem like it would be mind numbingly dumb. Mm -hmm. And um, it let me move to Austin, which was one of the cities I was willing to move to. (laughs) So I sort of, it checked a lot of boxes. I know that there were people who knew me who were disappointed that I didn't go try, like try, right? Everyone kind of has this conception in philosophy, maybe less so now, but um, that like you should really try. It's like that's what you're training to be, right? As a professional right. philosopher. Right. And um, I was just very pessimistic about my odds on the market. At the time, I had one publication. No, and then, and then I was like working on my second, which was a paper with JC. And then I had like a third kind of lined up, but that took a year to publish after I left graduate school, actually. Wow. And that was my degrees of truth stuff yeah i had the sort of um so maybe with three publications i would have stood a chance but there was someone who was like two years ahead of me at at uconn who um had like a really similar profile to me in a lot of ways and was a guy i really looked up to we were very good friends in grad school and he went on the market a lot and he just never got interviews like he wasn't even getting interviews and i thought like well this is a guy who's very similar to me in a lot of regards so the market might just not want me. And so I was just kind of pragmatic about it. Um, I also have some like criticisms of the way academia sort of forces you to be highly transient well into your thirties, sometimes even into your forties in a way that's like really hard to establish like lasting friendships or um, build a family or do, you know, or just like know people like know your neighbors. Even just like finding a spouse. Yeah. A lot of my friends are having a hard time with that. So like all of this stuff, made it less attractive though. Like I love philosophy. Like I genuinely love philosophy. And if I had seen a path where I could have done it professionally in the Academy, I would have continued to do so. Um, and it was, it was great. I think at the time when people asked me, I said something like, well, I don't really like teaching. I came to realize that was not true. I actually looking back, have a lot of fond memories about it. And now in some sense, what I do is teaching totally right? uh, when you look online. So you you add all of like that together, it just didn't seem like it was like a viable life path. Yeah. And so I didn't, I and I had a really solid alternative. Many people don't leave and go the adjuncting route or do all this other stuff because they don't have a clear alternative. And I right. was one of like the fortunate ones who just had one, right? Yeah. So I took it. And um and 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 that was I I I think overall probably was the most prudent decision. Yeah. Did it feel like breaking up? You know, you go through a period of like depression, basically, where and things. Yeah, you know, and you go through various stages about it. Like, well, maybe I didn't really like philosophy ever. You know, something like this. For a while, <laughs> you're wondering, um, you know, you do all this. Um, and but I but I love philosophy. I still read philosophy all the time. I don't read as many journals these days, just because it's hard yeah. to keep up. But yeah. um, I read a lot of philosophy. I think about philosophy. I talk about philosophy. Um, it's like my one true intellectual love, and. You know, the tech stuff gets me, you know, makes me a decent living. And um, I've moved a couple of times since like my first job out of grad school, but that's normal in the tech world. Um, And it's mentally stimulating in a way that's fun. I actually work with another philosophy PhD. My first job was a bunch of philosophy PhDs who all work in AI. My current job, my two closest collaborators, one of them is an undergrad in philosophy who was like an ABD in a different kind of program. Yeah. Uh, and then left to do library science stuff and then found his way to tech. And the other guy is a PhD in philosophy who worked on like decision theory. So he and I, like the three of us, you know, we still talk about philosophy all the time. So oh, that's awesome. You, are you, you able to, what, are you using your, your, your logic stuff? Are you, are you doing logic? Oh yeah. All, all, okay. all, all, all the time. I'm, I'm my day job is like as a, as an ontologist is like my title. Nice, I build, yeah. I build conceptual models using like graph databases of like metadata and stuff with like, semantic rules necessary and sufficient conditions all kinds of stuff like that so I, yeah. I use some of those logic jobs um that you had had to build i mean compared to what you would do if you were like writing logic papers still it's fairly simple right. but you also have to deal with a lot of the messiness of the real world while you're doing it 
yeah, but yeah I, I i get to use sort of my 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 philosophy stuff basically that's awesome so i i I hear that all the time um i first learned about that through like lex friedman a few years back and him talking about ontologies i'm like i know that word and then talking about you know phds in philosophy coming in with logics i was like wait i know this stuff and uh it's just really cool to put a face to it that like you're you're one of the the folks out there doing it um i I love that so you you've done a little bit of work on on analytic theology i'll I'll point folks to your phil people page uh you got a, a paper there with jc uh, I just want to wave at the fact that you're East, Eastern Orthodox. That's kind of cool for the audience for who knows Jared uh, otherwise. Like that, that's a pretty cool thing that that explains some of his reading interests. Probably you'll see like C.S. Lewis and stuff in there, and that's awesome. But you are also married to a philosophy grad student. Is she is she working on a PhD or master's? She's or? really yeah. She's very close to finishing her dissertation. So awesome. I will soon be married to another PhD in philosophy. <laughs> what what's her uh, what's her area of expertise or emphasis Uh, she works on mostly expressivism so philosophy of language and ethics and okay so this is like a real practical note for a lot of my philosophy grad student friends masters and phd students who are looking for spouses and stuff uh they ask me all the time i don't i don't talk a whole ton of philosophy with my wife it's mostly like i read this i have to dump this on you but i I wanted to hear from you man do you you guys sit around and just talk philosophy all the time or what yeah we talk philosophy all the time wow i mean we don't only talk about philosophy but yeah we talk about philosophy all the time yeah did you guys meet in? Uh, we met in, in grad in, school. Okay. Yeah. Nice, man. Okay. So, so that she is. Was, she was like two years behind me at the University of Connecticut. And that's okay. where we met. We started dating after a couple of months. Um, oh, so she's in dissertation, right? Kind of, you don't have to be on campus taking classes when you're. Once in you're far enough along, yeah. you don't have to. Um, and so, um, so she's in Austin, and um, yeah, you know, we just got along really well. We met. We started dating. I think we got engaged fairly quickly, especially by like. Um, the standards uh, that you might a lot of people in academia. I think we got engaged after like nine or ten months, and yeah. then we were married a year later. Yeah, which is like it's real quick for uh, academia, probably, and and a little slow for like the Christian community. Like, hey, what was taking so long, man? Yeah, yeah, it's nothing like these like people I know that are like, I'm on my third date. I think I found the one. You know, yeah, I got <laughs> yeah, a it's, ring already. It, it's, right. it's 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 nothing like that. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Well, okay, so so you moved into like the public sphere of uh, of philosophy. We we've been using this word a lot, and one thing I like to ask my philosophy, especially PhD uh, guests, is just what what is philosophy? Uh, can you give us a, a necessary and sufficient conditions or like a, a conceptualization of it? Yeah, I, I probably can't give you necessary and sufficient conditions. <laughs> right. I mean, I tend to have a very, very permissive view of what philosophy is mm-hmm. these days. Um, I probably had less of a permissive view when I was um, in the academy, but I also didn't think a lot about what it was while I was doing it. Yeah. Um, but I tend to think of philosophy is primarily asking, um, or it's like a philosophy is a certain kind of rigorous approach to asking non-empirical questions. This is so. This is one of the ways I would um, uh, characterize philosophy. So I think that that does not mean that philosophy cannot be empirically informed, right? But it is not asking the sorts of questions that simply are matters of fact in the sort of empirical sense that we could do these. I, I just think that's probably the easiest way to characterize this. That actually contests what philosophy of language is in a lot of places, uh, especially when you're doing such heavy interactions with um, semantics. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, I kind of saw myself as doing a kind of like quasi-empirical work in the semantics field and then always trying to find those like philosophical consequences and applications, which strictly speaking weren't empirical matters. Hmm. Um, but, you know, philosophy is also characterized by probably partly characterized by a kind of history of asking certain certain sorts of questions. We can point to Plato. Uh, there are non-Western examples, too. So the the matter of like pure lineage is like not exactly easy to characterize either um and there's kind of a spirit to philosophy in the sense of like it's people who ask the questions that other people want to dismiss as obvious or pointless um and you know you you get all of these together and you start to get some kind of cluster concept of what of what philosophy is yeah the the cluster it's always tough for me because um, I think of like we, we, we mentioned Frega earlier and I, I love Frega. I love I love the Germans like around that time period. Uh, Husserl, another one. I, I'm not a big fan of Heidegger, but um, Husserl is awesome. And then you think like, OK, but what about like Camus? And you're like, he's writing just novels. And uh, if you ask anyone on Instagram, Camus is like the philosopher of all philosophers or Nietzsche. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, but it's yeah. like, what about Frigga? And like, who's Frigga? What are you talking about? But you, you know, go into philosophy of language and Frigga's the, Frigga's the man. And they're like, oh, I don't even read Camus. It's, it's just so funny that this one term can capture both of those, those camps. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I, I do actually think that there's, there's something to actually, if we talk about sort of the, the continental analytic split a bit, yeah. a bit here, which is like always been a little artificial, um, mm-hmm. especially if you like, like Husserl, uh, Michael Dummett's got this great little book on like the origins of analytical philosophy and mm-hmm. uh, mentions that when Husserl's writing, I think it's the logical investigations and Frege is writing um, the foundations of arithmetic that there is no point in which continental and, and analytic philosophy were ever closer. Right? Yeah. <laughs> right? yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're sort of these founding people. And so like the founders were working on very similar problems and ideas. And then it just kind of splits it splits in a weird way. One of the reasons that I think that people on like Instagram love Camus if you go on like my discord server, lots of people love Nietzsche. Lots of people love Camus. You know, lots of people are into like the existentialist and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think part of it is because it does feel like those philosophers are like talking about your life, mm-hmm. in a, in, in a way that, that feels important. And, and I, I actually want to say like that probably is important. Yeah. And it's not easy to find analytic philosophers who are writing in a way that you could read them and you would think, this matters to me as I sort of like go and live. Right. Um, I, I find the puzzles that analytic philosophers work on to be fascinating and interesting. Um, But I think that analytic philosophy siloed itself for a long time in a way that made it very difficult for people to latch onto it. If they weren't really kind of invested in, in the project already. Yeah. You know, it's I used to teach the problems of philosophy by Bertrand Russell when I would uh, teach intro classes of some kind, or I taught it a few times. Right. And that, that, that is like a really hard book to teach undergrads, even though tons of like philosophers tell you that's a great way to introduce people to analytic philosophy. Yeah. And what I found that what I did was actually I had to reverse something where I made them read the final chapter first, mm. which is where Russell talks about the value of philosophy and it's about how like we're going to discover that the world is an interesting and diverse and strange place in a way that we never would have imagined had we not asked these questions to begin with and i'm like now with that in mind we're going to talk about desdemona loves cassio <laughs> like yeah. like like <laughs> yeah. over and over right now with that in mind we're going to talk about um knowledge by acquaintance um you know the, the like these sorts of concepts and that seemed to help them a little a, a little bit right that we're studying yeah. the really strange world that we live in um and so, you know, I, I think that slightly changed philosophy in like in the academy, like in the analytic world, definitely took like a social turn, like kind of while I was in grad school, I think still to some extent. Oh, yeah. Lots of people want to write on like sort of social issues or social epistemology yeah. or something like that. Yeah. And that's like a little bit easier for people to latch on to. So maybe yeah. this sort of weird divergence will end. I, I, I'm not totally sure. Yeah. Um, but, you know, frankly, also like Camus is just a more pleasurable writer to read than frega um <laughs> you might like love frega i love frega yeah. i had a, one professor in graduate school who i love very dearly who would say you know um i only read philosophers and that's why i start with frega like was like kind mm. of his like uh his his mm. joke um yeah and but frega's not fun <laughs> you know frega <laughs> might be thrilling in some like intellectual sense but he's not like fun to read yeah and you gotta figure out what these terms mean too yeah yeah. And like, but re- reading the plague is fun, right? Yeah. So even, yeah. If it's, even if it's heavy and um, certain continental philosophers or especially in the existentialist world just seem to have that capacity that mm-hmm. it's not necessarily the case that um, analytic philosophers have ever really done. That's also one note. I think there are some ethicists in the uh, um, analytic world that did a great job of this. I think, there's this Peter Railton paper I used to teach on alienation. It's like on consequentialism and alienation. Those are two of the three words that are in the title, I think. <laughs> and the idea is like this kind of fear, like that it, consequentialism, I think for Railton, he's like, it's clearly true, but it leads to this weird thing where we start like valuing our friend's happiness only because it sort of increases the sum total of pleasure, not because like, we value them and it leads to a yeah. kind of alienation and what happens. And then he ends up giving this whole theory about how like, 
or this whole like spiel about how like actually there is no separation really between you and me and we're like always these dependent relational beings mm. and actually all of this other stuff and this is how we overcome the alienation i could teach that in a in a class and students would be like oh i kind of get it right like there there was something yeah. that kind of clicked for them um so there are some some philosophers like that who i think in the analytic world who who have done that very well um Railton's just the example that's coming to mind. Uh, Susan Wolf has that moral saints paper. People seem to really yeah. get it. You know, that, yeah. that, that seems to just immediately, they say, Oh, interesting. Cause it, cause it actually affects how they would live their lives. Right. Like right. they think about ethics and how they would live their lives. There's a shocking amount of stuff that could get written in ethics that the average person would read and would not know how to say, how does this change my life? Like, how does this change the way that I live or something like right, that? Right. Peter Singer is another exception just because like he'll tell you, like, he just tells you like the conclusion to this is to like stop eating meat. The conclusion yeah. like the yeah, conclusion yeah. is to give all your money away. Like, yeah, you don't and see it's, that. He's so, that, it's, that, he's that, so that, clear. That, and so he's, he's like the favorite for like Christian apologists to kick around or for like the, you know, for yeah, whoever. It, it, exactly. And, but like yeah. read a paper on like the nature of reasons, which is a fascinating topic. It was a topic that I was really interested in at one point and even like, for like a day thought I could write my dissertation on it. Um, and um, because I always had this tendency when I was in the academy, when I was like thinking about potential dissertation projects, it was like, find the view that everyone mentions in their papers, but like dismisses immediately. Oh yeah. Uh, and I was like, that's the thing you should try to defend for a while. Right. So mm. the degree theory of truth has like seven defenders. Right. So I thought, yeah. okay, I'll come up with a new version of that. Um, and like, reason internalism is just taken as like a given for a lot of people it's not exclusively but like hardcore reason externalism i thought yeah i'll just become like the most vociferous reason externalist <laughs> or something that was like always kind of my my thought here but but anyway like those debates about reasons are like super interesting yeah but could you explain the debate about like internal and external reasons to someone who's just like not ever taken a philosophy class but says they might be interested in philosophy hmm. and then you have to use like the bernard williams example of like should the man stop beating his wife or something like yeah that? you're like oh and by the way bernard bloom says he doesn't have a reason to stop being you know yeah. you know what i mean like i well um, that's my there's that's a kind gap of, that has to be there's a bridge that needs to be crossed you're you're totally right man and that's that's part so getting into more into public uh philosophy uh i realized that my podcast i i meant it to be for my audience i are for my my friends for my family i i work as a campus minister so the guys i disciple and it, it just didn't happen at all and i would go so deep with like Timothy Williamson. And I'm like, sorry, guys, uh, we're going to talk about like, was Mars always dry or not dry? And we're going to get into vagueness. So I realized like, well, I need to do something different and and do a, a midway between this. And so I started this Park Notes channel trying to lure people in. I want to like lure them in with some kind of, you know, we could talk about Mars first and then maybe get in the problem of vagueness. And the hard thing is you can't go in that the analytic lives in your head and is like there's all these counterexamples and you're like well if i spent time on those this is going to be a, an hour instead of 15 minutes and mm -hmm. no one's going to yeah. like it anymore and so it's just hard yeah. to say if you're listening like here's the paper i'll point you to that go read that but i can't do it all mm -hmm. and and there's something to this like i very rarely touch on what you might call like typical analytic topics yeah. on my youtube channel yeah um basically at all uh, and in fact, I simplify a lot of things when I talk about philosophy. You know, my, my YouTube channel is not totally just about philosophy. It's about right. books in general and stuff. Yeah. But when I talk about philosophy, um, how often do I do like a really rigorous run through of an argument? Almost yeah. never. Right. Um, and in part because I kind of see this as like, one, there are other people who are going to do that and want to take the time and stuff. Yeah. Um, I'm sort of a volume content creator in the sense that I just put a lot of stuff out. <laughs> uh, uh, um and that's just like one way to do it, right? And then um, another another thing though is that like I kind of actually see my my content as like a first step into getting into philosophy if you've never taken a philosophy class. Yeah, that's why I talk about like philosophy for beginners a lot or something that's like good. this. That's good. Um, um, I want my fans to outgrow me hmm. <laughs> when they when they discover like more rigorous philosoph philosophy. Yeah. Um, I enjoy the discussions that I have. I, I I like the stuff I do. But if you get really into like some topic, um, then you will probably find someone else who is better suited to talk talk you through that topic. Mm. Um, and and I think that's a perfectly fine way to be, to be in this this ecosystem. Yeah. It's probably why I've been able to grow pretty quickly. And uh, also, though, it does lead to some criticism. You know, I think some philosophers would say like he barely goes into any detail he's like very vague about stuff that's 
in to some extent true. Um, some people want to say that I'm uh, I, I have been called a pseudo intellectual. See, that's uh, that's why uh, I want to talk about your logic work, because it's not it's not true. Like you have the chops <laughs> to do it. It's just like if imagine you going over, you know, like two dimensional semantics and stuff. It's just there's going to be three people that watch it and that's not your project. And so I, I wanted to just at least show people like, yeah, you're pretty hardcore on this stuff. You just aren't. That's not what you're doing on your YouTube channel. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think part of it's just like just know your audience and stuff. There's also like an autobiographical part that's important there, though, which is that I I never like loved the history of philosophy when I was in grad school or mm. like when I was in college. I was always like a like a puzzle first kind of philosopher, you could say. Like I wanted this totally give me like a metaphysical puzzle and I'll try to figure out ways to solve it. That was always like the kind of stuff I was interested that's in. That's kind of an analytic like uh characters like that that's analytics are yeah, yeah, yeah. called a historical for that reason right? i was like a very stereotypical analytic philosopher cool. in this yeah, regard right, right there yeah. are plenty of people who are exceptions i was not one yeah. right there was like a few exceptions in the history of philosophy that i found interesting i really liked re reading aristotle's nicomachean ethics when i took mm -hmm. this like seminar on it that comes up on my channel a lot but when i left the academy the puzzles seemed a little less interesting to me and they just didn't seem like the kind of thing that could like motivate me to keep reading a lot of philosophy on my own yeah and I just started reading more in the history of philosophy and like filling in gaps that had been left out in my education. You know, I, I, I didn't have like a bad education there. Um, I started my PhD actually at Boston University, which is like a very heavy history department. And so I took history class. I took seminars on Hegel. I took uh, seminars on the history of analytic philosophy. I took, you know, Hume and, you know, all, all these other things. Uh, I took a great Hume seminar when I was at UConn with uh, Don Baxter. But I... Uh, I just hadn't like loved history in, in a way that really kind of changed for me actually once I left the Academy and I just mm. started reading more history and I've come to believe that especially for self-taught beginners um, history is actually probably the best way to get them to read more philosophy. Mm. It latches onto big names that they are interested in anyways. And I kind of view it as like a, a, a life mission at this point to get people to stop being afraid of these, <laughs> of these yeah. texts. Yeah. Um, like one criticism I got early on when I would make these like philosophy books for beginners videos. And, you know, you have to have to understand, I, I made this book, this one video called like eight philosophy books you should read, or you need to read or something like this yeah, yeah. terribly made. I just grabbed <laughs> the books that I thought looked good off of my shelf. I had, I had like a hundred subscribers when I made that video. It yeah. now has like 500,000 views or something <laughs> or something absurd. Right. Yeah. I had no idea that that video would take would take off. My like first two videos on YouTube are in the hundreds of thousands of views. Yeah. Um, I just got like stupid lucky there. there. There was there was nothing about, and they don't deserve it. Like the quality's bad. I don't under, I don't understand it. Hmm. Um, and people were like, "How could you possibly recommend being in time to a beginner?" One, I did not recommend being time as your first book to philosophy. I actually, recommend it essentially. And two, I think Heidegger's easier to read than people say. Not hmm. that he's easy to read. But that, for instance, Heidegger provides definitions of a lot of his terms. Hmm. This is a this is a common crit criticism that uses these terms and no one understands. Heidegger defines his terms often. You have to almost read him like you read a math textbook where they don't remind you of the definition every time they use it. You go yeah. back and look for it. That takes words. But my view is that like you could do it if you like, actually wanted to read it, right? Yeah. Similarly, like someone even said like recommending Plato for beginners was too was too hard, which is just total BS. Like yeah, it's, that's weird. It's, it's obviously not. I have taught intro classes with Plato and they're basically dialogues, hand them to your friends and act them out. If you really want to like understand mm. them, listen to them on audiobook with different voice actors. They, those exist. There's yeah. all these different ways you could consume this. And that basically anyone who has like some level of college education, maybe even a high school education with some work could read many, if not most of these texts, would some of them go over your head? Absolutely. There are some that would go over my head too, Yeah. but we, we build up this weird stigma. That's why you always have to put four beginners or something in a video. Yeah. Yeah. To tell someone like, oh, I promise you can do it. Yeah. I well, read hard books on purpose because I think almost anyone could do it if they yeah. if they're willing to put in the time. I, I think the, there's another the, oh, I'm sorry, man. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, the, last point was, the amount of time you might have to put in is different than the amount of time someone else has to put in. Yes. That's yes. something you're gonna have to figure out. Yeah. Uh, and for me, that's different too, right? I find certain philosophers very easy to read. If I were to I've tried and failed to understand Hegel many times. Uh, um, and he's just someone that if I really wanted to read him, I feel like I'd have to set aside a year 
I'm going to read the phenomenology and the science of logic in that year. And I'm going to read like five companion books and that's all right. My reading list is going to get obliterated if I do that, (laughs) but that would be fine if I really thought reading Hegel was super important for my life. Yeah. Um, I think another stigma, I don't know why people think this, but they think that if you read a book once, like you can master a book by reading it once or you can totally get it. It's like, why, why do you think that? Like I did this whole uh, episode on marginalia and why you should write in your books. And it's, it's cause it's, it's for future Parker. Like I'm not going to probably get all this. I'm definitely not going to get all this. My pride is, is getting in the way. I'm not going to get this first, first step, but I can leave myself breadcrumbs and help myself on the second, third, fourth, fifth time. And I got that from C.S. Lewis and saying like, you need to, you, you have to read a book more than once. And uh, then the, the the primary text is another thing that he talks about in uh, intro to like on the incarnation, I think. And he says, yeah. you use that. You can do this. You don't have to be nervous. And actually mm-hmm. a lot of times the, the secondary texts are harder to read than the primary. Yeah, absolutely. They're going to be much more technical usually mm-hmm. uh, about things. They're going to be less fun probably. Yeah. And you, you have to admit that there's a certain level of enjoyment to reading. That's going to make it easier for you to keep flipping the page. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I'm a big believer um, every time I've given sort of advice for reading in videos or something, I say two times is kind of the minimum. It doesn't have to be back to back. It's not like you finish the book once, <laughs> yeah. you flip it over, yeah, right? Back. It's also why I, I actually say that you should not make too many notes. You should make some though, like yeah, what you think you is important, yeah, you what cool you think system. is important, what you don't understand, right? Little notes like that um, because you're leaving room for your future self to add, <laughs> add notes yeah. as well. Um, yeah. But that's that's you know we could quibble. But my point is just like marginalia is actually a signpost for you later. Yeah, totally. because sometimes you're going to read that book and you're going to say, "I didn't understand that." Like, what do you mean, right? Or I thought this was a good point. This is a terrible point. Like, yeah, because actually you change between readings of text, yeah. and how you then engage with the text is going to change too. So there's just there's so much to just like reading it more than once, and 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 just getting over this idea that if you don't understand the first time you're like a fool or a moron or it's a bad book that's the normal state of affairs for anything that's like really worth reading in my opinion so just be okay with it just accept it yeah that's one of the benefits of actually studying philosophy in the academy i'd say is that you have friends sometimes enemies in your class and some, for whatever reason, they can understand this text better. And, and you're in philosophy of technology and you have to read Heidegger and your friend just gets challenging forth. And you're like, dude, what is he saying? He's talking about things thinking. And they're like, oh, here, let me help you explain. And then the next time you explain them, you explain to them because whatever historical reasons or the way you're, you're constituated at the moment, you can understand and they can't. And that, that, yeah, that's yeah. one thing I have really benefited uh, being in the academy versus when I was just teaching myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, yeah, you're going to get that. I think one thing I would love to, I would love to solve this problem in the future, which is how do you help people who aren't in the Academy yeah. have those experiences? Totally. Um, is the discord working? Does that, does that know, play that role? A little bit, you know, I've got, um, I don't do a ton on the reading groups on my discord just for time, sure. but people organize them themselves. Yeah. Uh, and like we have a Chinese philosophy reading group going on in that in that group, which is not something I like know anything about. Mm. But um, one of the members has a PhD uh, uh, or not. Sorry, has a master's and he is thinking about a PhD and he has done a ton of stuff on Chinese philosophy in his master's degree. So he's like, yeah, I'll, I'll lead the group. Right. And then mm. we have uh, they, they, they meet um, and, you know, it works. There's like always with reading groups. This is a constant thing in the academy as well just getting people to like stay committed to the whole thing it's very common for the first meeting of a reading group to have 10 people the last (laughs) meeting of the reading group to have two people yeah (laughs) Uh, um and there's a there's a very steep drop off in the first like four weeks um so we're working on it i'd like to maybe formalize it a little bit in the future to, to figure something out i've thought about also um doing like courses in the future like um you know charge some amount of money because i have to make it so that i actually am like not spending my own money to do it or something yeah. like that. And but have, have buy-in too. Yeah. Yeah. Literal, yeah. yeah. Literal I, I actually, I actually do think asking someone to pay a certain amount of money that like stings a little, but not too much so that it can yeah. be accessible yeah. actually is important. Cause then you feel like you have to, you have to do this as an example. I, um, I really decided this year I wanted to, especially after my son was born, I like wanted to get back into shape. I'd really let myself go while my wife was pregnant. And so like for the first time ever, I like found a trainer and I like committed to like, five months of it and i paid wow. it all up front oh, now if man. i don't go so now yeah. if i don't go i just wasted a ton of money right totally. and my thought is 
I can't, I can't miss a session now because I've, yeah. I've already, I've, I've already paid it. And I think there's something to that where it's like charge 50 bucks to join or even 25. If someone can't afford it, you, you can work things out. Right. Yeah. Um, but do like groups where maybe a lot of it is like reading on your own or something like this. But then I facilitate like some zoom calls or something. Yeah. Um, the more I have to facilitate, frankly, the more I probably have to charge just cause like it's more time, it's more organization and stuff. Right. But, um, and nothing here is like set in stone. This is just kind of ideation. The idea though would be to find ways to get people interested. Yeah. There's this one organization that does this stuff really well and they do it for free in a way that I really commend called the Catherine project. Mm, um, okay. Zena hits, I believe is the one who runs this. She wrote this great little book called lost in thought. Um, and they run these reading groups where they have tutors that they're really selective about like which tutors they take. Um, and you can sign up for free. And you sign up to read like a great book for like three months. And, you know, we're going to read Moby Dick together. We're going to read Hume together. We're going to mm. read this. And they seem to have a lot of success. Um, uh, in fact, I would highly recommend that people check out the Catherine Project. It's like a like I'm, I'm very um, like pleased to see something like that exist yeah. uh, in, in the world. Um, uh, Zena is a, uh, at St. John's. Great, it was fantastic. Great book school. And so she's kind of using the St. John's model but bringing it to the masses mm. and they'll have like high school students who join and they'll have like people in their seventies who join these. And they say, they, they say the classes are great. Wow. That's amazing. That's a, what a huge project. Wow. Yeah. They have to like solicit donations. Like, I mean, I think for, for Zena, you know, she's a full-time professor made some money from writing a popular book, but like she spends a lot of time as president of the Catherine project, just like fundraising. Yeah. You totally. have to have this whole, this whole, this whole thing, but it's, yeah. it's such a cool thing to see in the world. Um, and I, and I'd I love, love to that. solve some of those problems. Yeah, yeah I, I'm I'm with you on that, and um, that's I I have for so long wanted to. I started out wanting to be like a public intellectual, and then I was like, "Ooh, that's pretty cringe to think of myself that way or call myself that." And then I then I got into um, I started studying academic philosophy. I, st I studied on my own, and I was like, "Man, I'm awesome! I can learn everything myself." Got into the into the academy and realized, like, "Wow, I didn't know anything." Now I want to be an intellectual, uh, you know, in the academy and then seeing like, oh, I also want to have a reach. I want to like I want to teach people and I want to have a general audience. So now getting into like public philosophy and seeing there's kind of you, you mentioned already with uh, academics, especially uh, analytics right now. They talk about having a public facing philosophy and uh, and a peer facing philosophy. And I love these folks. They all come on my podcast. They're great. I love you guys. Please keep coming on. But a lot of times their idea of public facing philosophy is like, how do I stuff what I'm already been working on that the public doesn't care about into the public's like face? How do I get that? Mm -hmm. Instead of asking, what is the public interested in? How can I apply my work to those puzzles or those problems? Yeah. Yeah. There. So there are good examples. I mean, I know this guy very well. He was on my dissertation committee. So maybe that's not the best one we to pick. Sure. Michael Lynch is like a great example of this, in my opinion. Mm. So Michael wrote um, a book called the internet of us where mm. it was about like epistemology and stuff, but about the internet. And it mm. was like a huge hit. It led him to like going to like the Aspen ideas festival and like a Ted talk okay. and stuff like this, Yeah, you know, so that's like a good success. And he just wrote a book. I read it. I read it uh, this weekend called know it all society. I think it came out like last year. Mm. I've been meaning to write him an email to tell him all the things I liked and disliked about the book uh, okay. in like a very friendly fashion. But, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, and I thought it was great. And it was about like truth and politics and like, intellectual arrogance versus being having intellectual commitments or moral commitments and how you can handle that in politics. Yeah. And that's really constant with a lot of stuff that Michael has been thinking about for yeah. years. He ran this thing through the humanities Institute at, at UConn uh, called the um, public discourse project. Um, I think that's what it ended up. I, it changed the name at one point, but anyway, and it was all about like social epistemology and politics and stuff like this. Hmm. Um, he had a field day when everyone was talking about like, fake news and post-truth because he'd worked on truth for so long yeah, yeah but yeah. um you know he he worked on that stuff and it, it's translated really well michael is still very productive i think he writes fewer academic articles now because he does so much public philosophy yeah he, it's not like he's opted out he still does it but it's really hard to balance those two things right right um also a lot of his time is like he runs the humanities institute at, at uconn which has become this thriving thing but mm. um it's really hard to do both especially if they're not clearly um, aligned, right? Yeah. I, I was looking at your channel. You had uh, Jonathan Schaffer on, right? With yeah. uh, um, someone else I, whose name I can't remember. Yeah, Goff, Philip Goff. Yeah, yeah. Philip Goff. He's talked about like 
um, the nature of the mind, functionalism, stuff like that. I love that stuff. I read so much Jonathan Jaffer when I was at grad school. <laughs> uh, I, I got to see him give a talk on causation in quantum mechanics or something like this yeah. uh, once um, about like the pointer and the wave and stuff like that. Uh -huh. And I, I loved it. I, I adored this stuff. It would be hard for him to write that stuff and then find like an audience for it. Right. No disrespect to it at all. It's great. Um, but there's a certain public audience that wants that stuff. It's fairly, it's fairly small yeah. to estimate, I don't know, 5,000 people or something like this who would watch, who, who would watch a, an episode. Um, there's other work that you can do like Michael, where he really leaned into like the, the politics side of stuff mm -hmm. and like the political culture side of stuff that opens up a wider, a, a wider Avenue where he's been able to apply some of his philosophy stuff, but he really has to do a lot of work to translate the ideas mm -hmm. in, 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 into it. Um, I'm trying to write a book. Uh, um, and it would be very much like a public philosophy thing. Okay. And based on some stuff I do on the channel and stuff, it would not be about truth. It would not be about my former, mm. uh, former academic work. Yeah. It would just be on some of these, uh, some themes that have kind of emerged on my channel, uh, over and over again. Um, it, it's just, but that, that's not actually me like turning my back on the, that the stuff I did in the Academy. It's more that just actually my interests are more like I read the ancient Greeks more than anyone else at this point. Yeah. Which if you knew me in graduate school and you heard me say that, you would laugh. Like you'd be like, there's no way Jared, Jared does this stuff. Right. Uh, um, and so uh, I basically have like really shifted my, my priorities and that's changed how I like um, present things to the public. Yeah. Well, so this is, that's fascinating, man. I'm definitely gonna read that book, but I, um, I've, I've been doing this through looking at the YouTube analytics and seeing like what what what's playing what what do people what are people interested in, and a lot of them are interested in like Gödel's incompleteness theory uh, theorems against computational theories of mind. I'm like, what what no, you guys don't know about this, but you put out one little video on it and it explodes. And you're like, okay, there's something in the algorithm or just the audience, and they love that kind of stuff. They love simulation hypothesis. They really love panpsychism. Uh, they love stoicism. And I wanted to ask you about that too. Like yeah, yeah, there's yeah. certain things that just pop. And if you have been working in those in the academy, or if you're an epistemologist and you've thought about brain innovat skepticism, like now is your time jump in on, on simulation hypothesis in a way that's a little bit accessible, you know, and, and, mm -hmm. and pull them in. And so I've, I've just, it's like a hobby horse of mine to say, um, how do we do public facing philosophy that actually takes some of the popular questions, philosophical questions of the public and, and, inject into them you know cutting edge work because a lot of the sociologists a lot of the psychologists a lot of um even like popular linguists are doing the work of the philosophers and i'm jealous i'm like mm -hmm. you guys that used to be the the role of the philosopher go take it back yeah so i think that the first thing you have to do probably is meet the public where they are mm. meaning what are they already interested in yeah okay like it it, it there's a certain contingent of people who would say this sounds very um, inauthentic or kind of mercenary almost to say this, mm -hmm. but like, look, I want to talk to people about philosophy. What I have found is that oftentimes people will tolerate me talking about philosophy. If I slip it into other stuff. Yes. Yes. One of my, my, my most popular video is a, is a video about journaling. Yeah. I don't know if you watch this one. I've seen how it. to yeah, journal. Yeah. Like like a philosopher. Yeah, I came out with one a week before that, and it was yeah. eight, eight ways to journal like a philosopher. Yeah, yeah. and it, yeah. it did really well for me. And then I saw yours, yeah. like, dang it. The that's my most successful video ever. I had two hundred fifty thousand views in two weeks, which for me is absurd. Like I, I, you know, um, and I think currently it's like over six hundred thousand. I think it will eventually be my first video to a million. Totally. You know, just like projecting here. Uh, about it's a six minute video. About two minutes of it is really about journaling. Mm -hmm. um, because I start by just like, look, journaling, all it is is just like writing down your writing, writing stuff down. And then I answer this practical question. What do you write about? Right. And I provoke this method. Right. And I talk about like, write about something that went well, something that didn't go well. Um, and then also um, try to like write a little paragraph about like, how is this like continuing the narrative of my life? Right. Yeah. And then I pivot really hard. And I'm like, now I'm going to talk to you about narrative conceptions of the self. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I love that. And I'm going to talk to you about the idea from ancient philosophy that I drawing from Julia Honest's book, The Morality of Happiness, about making sense of one's life as a whole. And I try to yeah. introduce you to the concept of eudaimonia or human flourishing, mm -hmm. right? 
I have tricked 600,000 people into learning about eudaimonia. (laughs) This is is what you have to do. And none of them regretted it, right? It's not, it's not, it's not, um, a trick and like a, yeah. a, 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 it's not a bait and switch. I taught them a little bit about journaling, which is what they were interested in. And I taught them about philosophy up there and it's in the title. Both of those yeah. things are in the title. Do I care about my journaling content as much? Like just like journaling for the sake of it. I think journaling is a very important practice. I think it's good. I want you to care about the philosophy, right? Like mm-hmm. that's, that, that's, that's the thing. And I think that one of the things that I've done and that I will continue to do for quite a while is really lean into a certain audience that cares about like they would watch what we would call like self-improvement videos or like yeah. personal development videos or something yeah. like that because actually especially the ancient philosophers had a lot of thoughts about those topics mm-hmm. but the answers that they would give to the questions people are asking are very different than what you would hear now yeah it's like so the I'm philosophy of a, yeah philosophy as a way of life type stuff right and it's like yeah they, it, they've it, been saying it, this for it, a long time exactly I'm, I'm working on a video i don't know when it will come out because it's going to be I, I kind of have some ideas for how to make it like really good, good and it's going to take a while. But um, the uh, potential is going to be something like how to be happy, parentheses, like according to Aristotle. Nice. It's actually teaching you about Aristotle. It's yeah. actually teaching you about Nicomachean Ethics, which is like my favorite book. But it's starting with this question of like people want to know how to be happy. That's why the self-improvement industry is... Um, I, I, I looked this up. Like McKinsey did a study on like the wellness industry, which includes like physical wellness, but also like spiritual or mental wellness or something like this yeah. it's in like the trillions of dollars like wow. <laughs> like, like annually yeah. and they just projected to grow right people want to ask those questions they're getting sold really bad answers yeah um the power of positive thinking or you're just like one skincare routine away from solving all your problems or something right. like this right or you need to accumulate masses of, of wealth you know it's 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 those kinds of questions that i really want to push those kinds of answers i really want to push back against while saying that the question you're asking is a legitimate one, mm-hmm. that that you're not stupid or weird um, or vain for wondering how to make yourself a better person, right? Yeah, and that's I'm that's not an expert on that either, right? Yeah, so that's why I feel too. Yeah, pil- uh, yeah, pilgrim along the way, and and yeah. I, I think that helps too because you can see, um, you'll show like a notebook and be like, "Look, this is from 2010." And it's like, oh, so this isn't something you just picked up in order to make a video. This is your lifestyle. And I, I actually, so I started my channel and then I found you and I was like, oh, dude, we're like kindred spirits here. And I saw um, like commonplace books. I'm like, dude, I've been keeping commonplace books since 2010. I didn't know people like these. And so then I, mm-hmm. I made a video about commonplace books and two ways that I use them. One's a compendium, one's a commonplace book. And then I slipped in some philosophy and I'm, I'm talking about machine functionalism. I'm like, surprise, you guys didn't know that, but you're getting some machine functionalism in here today. And yeah, I, yeah, I just, yeah, I yeah. love the way you do it. I love because it's, it's not bait and switch, but it is drawing them into uh, deeper philosophy and, and self-mastery through like self-help and self-help's like a dirty word in a lot of academic circles. She's like, it's a self-help book. It's like, dude, people need help. And just cause it's yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. like this is what else? Like bring them into philosophy, theology, like good, good stuff. Good answers. The Epictetus is in Chiridion is a self-help book. Mm-hmm. It's, it just is. And also if you look in like the history of the world has these manuals for better living. Hmm. Um, you find them in the Christian tradition. Um, St. Augustine has like an Inchiridion, one that's often just called his Inchiridion. These manuals for like for daily life or something like this that are supposed to like lead to spiritual flourishing. Yeah. Um, you'll find them all over, all, all over, all over the place in history. People have seen that writing these sorts of things is actually useful. Yeah. The reason that self-help has a bad reputation now is frankly because the vast, because there's so many of those books, so much of that content and so much of it is awful. Yeah. <laughs> so much of it is just like stuff that sounds good. It's empty platitudes that doesn't actually um, speak to like the fundamental, the, 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 the fundamental issues yeah. here. Or even if there is a good idea, how often can it be so quickly co-opted into something else? Think about like minimalism as a trend in the book I'm writing. I, I, I plan to write like a very long part about minimalism. Huh. When you read those original minimalists, they're talking about how like we overconsume. It's bad for us. It's bad for the environment. It's going to be a burden on our families when we, when we die. 
So the first step is to get rid of stuff. And the next step is to not buy new stuff and then to find happiness in activities, right? Who else says that happiness is an activity? Aristotle, you know, like, you know, mm, say, like, yeah. like to find it in relationships, right? Or experience, experiences. Um, you can like, that's a, that there's like a lot of good messages to that, right? Minimalist very quickly became a marketing trend where you would yeah. get rid of all your stuff and then you would buy the minimalist version of it. I, <laughs> I threw away my vase because I don't need a vase, but now I've bought a minimalist vase, so it's okay, yeah. right? Yeah. And like how quickly that happened, like that stuff happened. Um, and so even the good ideas get co-opted very, very, very quickly. Um, I wish though that people could ask those questions. How do I change my relationship to material goods? Like that's mm. a, that is actually a philosophical question that has been relegated to the world of self-help in a way that makes us feel very odd to then, to, to then ask it, but read the meditations by Marcus Aurelius yeah. and you will see lots of stuff about material goods. Uh, yeah. you read Epictetus, read Aristotle, the Aristotle disagrees with the Stoics about how much about material goods in, in the good life. That's an interesting question. How much yeah. material, uh, comfort does one need to actually live, live a good life? Ascetic traditions in both the East and the West, um, and uh, I mean, East very broadly here, uh, here have very different views about, about, about this stuff too. So that's like an open question. How, what kind of material comfort do I need to live a good life? Yeah. And a philosopher could write about that. And like, that's one of the things I want to write about um, or I want to introduce to people. But you have to, but if you wrote it like that, imagine a YouTube video that says, um, what is material comfort? Or like, why do you need material goods to be happy or something like that? Yeah seven people would click on it right yeah uh, right. uh um but put it in terms of you know why minimalism failed or something like that yeah. suddenly that's a very youtube friendly kind of title but you can talk about the same stuff right yeah dude that's that's so good it, it's just it's really encouraging to me that they're that you're doing this because mm, people are really hungry for it. Like, people people go to like jocko willink and i i like jocko willink i think he's he's awesome um he's He's awesome. He's great. So I don't want to like poo poo him or anything, but I, I just, I, I started my podcast because I wanted philosophers and theologians to have more of a public impact. I like their works and I'm like, let's get this out to the rest of the public. And it's not, it's not like I'm not Lex Friedman, but at least some more people are seeing it. And so I'm really excited to see that you're just exploding here. And, and especially as like a first step into philosophy and my goal with my other channel, I just thought of it as we're talking, but that's like a second step. Like, yeah, I, I, let me, I'm going to keep passing you on to the third step and then, you know, eventually we'll keep going and, and you'll, you'll be uh, blaming us when you're working on your PhD with no job prospects. Yeah. That'd be fun. Yeah. <laughs> be fun. Um, man. So uh, we don't have a whole ton of time to talk about sci-fi, but you, uh, you're into sci-fi and you do a lot with sci-fi and I, I wanted to get your take. Why, how come the, the sci-fi folks, um, are able to get philosophy into the public so much better than philosophers? Uh, oh, I think the answer there is pretty, pretty simple. Um, they just can tell very good stories along mm -hmm. the way. Right. And it's like, it can be thrilling or it can be intriguing. There's like mystery in a lot of sci-fi novels. People like talk about, it. they love the world for the world building, right? They're like the, the yeah. little book fair, which is like slowly revealed to you. And then you have to like, think about it. Um, and philosophers mostly train on how to be like very clear and um how to present your ideas so that no one misses them this is yeah. this is a virtue in philosophy it's a good thing to do when you're writing philosophically um but that does not always translate or does not always immediately mean that you're also writing in a way that's that hooks someone yeah. because oftentimes actually people are hooked by ambiguity they just want you to resolve the ambiguity by the end right <laughs> so yeah. um, um so science fiction writers the good ones can present a very good idea by presenting a um uh, science fiction writers can present a very good idea by putting it into an interesting world that kind of gets you thinking. Also, in a, in a way, you might even put it as like um, um, that the world itself can be like embodying the philosophical ideas. Yeah, that's good. Point. In a way, the best versions of this, like what I call like philosophical science fiction on my channel, isn't like two philosophers having a philosophical debate. Right, <laughs> right, right. It's not like that. Like that's not what you do. Neil Stevenson sometimes does that, but that's a little yeah. bit different. Um, he also puts it into the world in a way that matters to the plot. Mm -hmm. And so that gets you thinking about those ideas kind of as they lived out in these characters' lives or in the events of the book. And that 
hooks people, right? That, yeah. Like people like stories. And yeah. we should we should be cool with people liking stories. And we yeah. should want to bring stories to them. Yeah, like in Out of the Silent Planet, Lewis, um, that's a really good you just brought it up in my head that the aliens are like the tripartite of the soul. And there's the mm-hmm. the Fiffletrigi and the Sorns and and they all represent different aspects. I I I think um Herbert, Frank Herbert, like did more for my meta philosophy than any philosopher ever has in the uh, Dune Messiah. He talks about the Zen Sunni Mentat. And he's like the mm-hmm. Mentat's like the analytic philosopher and the Zen Sunni's like the the continental I'm saying in my head. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, dude, I want to be a Zen Sunni Mentat. And so like that I'm making a video on that because I'm like, let's see if we can lure, you know, all the sci-fi <laughs> folks into the analytic continental divide and explain yeah. some stuff. Um, Jared, this is this has been awesome, man. Thanks so much for for your time. Sure. Um, I hope this is just like the start of something. I'd love to have you back on. Thanks for the work you're doing. Um, if you guys are watching this video, I'm sure you've already heard of Jared, but check out his YouTube channel. Um, it's just called Jared Henderson. Just called Jared Henderson, yeah. And then how about your uh, your Substack? Also, there's just jaredhenderson.substack.com. On there, I do doing a read through of the meditations, Marcus Aurelius. Mm-hmm. On that part's totally free. And then I write some occasional essays uh, for people behind the paywall if you're interested in uh, supporting me or something like that, which just helps you know keep the channel going and stuff. Totally. That's awesome. Yeah. All right, man. Well, that's awesome, folks. That's going to have to do it for now. This has been Parker's Pensies. And as always, all glory to God.